0: Chapter eighteen A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln This LibriVox recording is in the public domain The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown Chapter eighteen A Lincoln and His Cabinet An Odd Assortment of Officials Misconception of Rights and Duties Frictions and Misunderstandings The Early Cabinet Meetings Informal Conversational Affairs Queer Attitude Toward the War President Lincoln's cabinet, while containing men of marked ability and fitness for their positions, was in some respects about as ill-assorted and heterogeneous a body of men as were ever called to serve together as ministers and advisers of a great government. Its selection was a surprise to the country. Mr. John Bigelow said it had the appearance of being selected from a grab-bag. Not one of the members, continues Mr. Bigelow, was a personal or much of a political friend of Mr. Lincoln not one of them had ever had any experience or training in any executive office except wells of connecticut if he could be claimed as an exception because of having served three years in a bureau of the navy in washington of military administration still less of actual war no member knew anything by experience the heads of the two most important departments the secretaries of state and the treasury were both disappointed candidates for the chair occupied by mr lincoln it was nothing less than providential that the President was so happily constituted as neither to share nor to provoke any of the jealousies or envies of either of them, and by his absolute freedom from every selfish impulse gradually compelled them all to look up to him as the one person in whose singleness of eye they could all and always confide. Not immediately, but in the course of two or three years, they got into the habit of turning to him like quarrelling children to their mother to settle all the questions that temporarily divided them. These cabinet ministers were a devoted and patriotic body of men, but their misconceptions of their respective rights and duties were at first grotesque. Mr. Seward, a man of far greater administrative experience than Lincoln, assumed that he, rather than the President, was to be the mastermind of the new administration—premier, he at first called himself. Mr. Stanton, the Secretary of War, thought the Navy should be a sort of adjunct to the War Department, an error of which Secretary Wells of the Navy Department speedily relieved him. These two men were altogether too unlike to get on well together. The cold and somewhat stately Wells was repelled by Stanton's impulsiveness and violence, while Stanton was exasperated by Wells's calmness and lack of excitability. Lincoln's ministers had no idea that he towered above them, says Mr. John T. Morse, Jr., and no one of them was at all overawed by him in those days. Presiding over them at the cabinet, casually meeting them, chatting with them, or lounging, as was his habit, in Stanton's room, Lincoln seemed only officially superior to them. One of them had expected to be president, and another meant to be. A third dared to be insolent and unruly it seemed to be only by a chance of politics that these men stood to him as junior partners to a senior, or like a board of directors to the president of a corporation. The unfriendly feeling existing between members of the cabinet comes out in many entries in Wells's diary. Pressing, assuming, violent, impatient, intriguing, harsh, and arbitrary are examples of the terms in which Stanton is spoken of by Wells his contempt for the committee on the conduct of the war is expressed in no less stinging words the members of this committee are most of them narrow and prejudiced partisans mischievous busybodies and a discredit to congress mean and contemptible partisanship colors all their acts it is amusing to note that while secretary wells was thus outspoken in his criticisms of others he himself did not escape calumny one critic, Thurlow Weed, who it may be remembered had objected to Wells's appointment to a cabinet position when Lincoln suggested it to him in their consultation at Springfield before the inauguration, declared that it is worse than a fault, it is a crime to keep that old imbecile at the head of the Navy Department. And another critic expressed the uncomplimentary opinion that if Lincoln would send old Wells back to Hartford, it would be better for the Navy and for the country. THE ACCOUNTS OF THE EARLIEST CABINET MEETINGS, AS GIVEN BY SECRETARY WELLS, WHO WAS NEARLY ALWAYS PRESENT, ARE FULL OF INTEREST. CABINET MEETINGS, WHICH AT THAT EXCITING PERIOD SHOULD HAVE BEEN DAILY, WERE INFREQUENT, IRREGULAR, AND WITHOUT SYSTEM, SAYS MR. WELLS. THE SECRETARY OF STATE NOTIFIED HIS ASSOCIATES WHEN THE PRESIDENT DESIRED A MEETING OF THE HEADS OF DEPARTMENTS. IT SEEMED UNADVISABLE TO THE PREMIER, AS HE LIKED TO BE CALLED AND CONSIDERED, THAT THE MEMBERS SHOULD MEET OFTEN, AND THEY DID NOT. Consequently, there was very little concerted action. At the earlier meetings there was little or no formality. The cabinet meetings were a sort of privy council or gathering of equals, much like a senatorial caucus, where there was no recognized leader, and the Secretary of State put himself in advance of the President. No seats were assigned or regularly taken. The Secretary of State was invariably present some little time before the cabinet assembled and from his former position as the chief executive of the largest state in the union as well as from his recent place as a senator and from his admitted experience and familiarity with affairs assumed and was allowed as was proper to take the lead in consultations and also to give tone and direction to the manner and mode of proceedings the president if he did not actually wish readily acquiesced in this Mr. Lincoln, having never had experience in administering the government, state or national, deferred to the suggestions and course of those who had. Mr. Seward was not slow in taking upon himself to prescribe action, and to do most of the talking, without much regard to the modest chief, but often to the disgust of his associates, particularly Mr. Bates, who was himself always courteous and respectful, and to the annoyance of Mr. Chase, who had, like Mr. Seward, experience as a chief magistrate. Discussions were desultory and without order or system, but in the summing up and conclusions the President, who was a patient listener and learner, concentrated results and often determined questions adverse to the Secretary of State, regarding him and his opinions as he did those of his other advisers, for what they were worth and generally no more. It was perhaps natural, in a country so long free from wars as ours had been that the Civil War should be regarded as a sort of political affair to be directed from Washington, rather than by commanders in the field. For the first year or so the feeling was quite general that military affairs should be directed by Congress, acting through its Committee on the Conduct of the War, and by the Secretary of War, who complained bitterly that he was not allowed to assume control of military movements, and that his plans were thwarted by McClellan, whom he especially hated the president himself did not escape this condemnation the feeling at this time is expressed in a sentence in stanton's complaint reflected through chase that the president takes counsel of none but army officers in army matters chase declared to wells according to the letter that the treasury as well as other departments ought to be informed of the particulars of every movement the generals engaged in planning the campaigns and fighting the battles of the war and their commander-in-chief the president could hardly fail to find their task an uphill one, when ideas so naive and fatuous as these prevailed. It is no wonder that General Grant recorded in his memoirs the opinion that the great difficulty with the Army of the Potomac during the first year of the war was its proximity to Washington, that the conditions made success practically impossible, and that neither he, nor General Sherman, nor any officer known to him, could have succeeded in General McClellan's place, under the conditions that then existed. Gradually, and by slow and often painful experience, a clearer conception of the meaning and methods of war prevailed. In this, as in so many things, Lincoln's insight was first and surest. By patience, tact, shrewdness, firmness, and diplomatic skill, he held the cabinet together and stimulated its members to their best efforts for the common cause. But the personal frictions and dissensions in the cabinet, and the more or less meddlesome attitude of leaders in the Senate and the House, at times sorely tried the strength and patience of the harassed President, compelling him to act the part of peacemaker, and sometimes of judge and arbiter as well. At one time Secretary Stanton threatened to resign, and Chase declared that in that case he should go with him. Stanton and Wells were in frequent antagonism, Wells stating, in his diary that Stanton assumed, or tried to assume, that the Navy should be subject to the direction of the War Department. Seward was meddlesome toward other departments—runs to the President two or three times a day—wants to be premier, etc., says Wells. Between Seward and Chase there was perpetual rivalry and mutual but courtly distrust. They entered the cabinet as rivals, and in cold courtesy so continued the most serious of those cabinet imbroglios occurred late in december of eighteen sixty two while lincoln was well-nigh overwhelmed by burnside's dreadful repulse at Fredericksburg. the gist of the affair as given by mr wells is that the opposition to seward in the senate grew to such a point that a committee was appointed to wait on the president and request seward's removal from the office of secretary of state the president mr wells tells us was shocked and grieved at this demonstration. He asked all the members of his cabinet to meet the Senate committee with him. All the members of the cabinet were present except Seward, who had already sent the President his resignation. The meeting was attended also by Senators Collamer, Fessenden, Harris, Trumbull, Grimes, Howard, Sumner, and Pomeroy. The President says Mr. Wells opened the subject for which the meeting was called taking a conciliatory tone toward the senators and requesting from each in turn an expression of opinion as to the wisdom of dropping seward from the cabinet most of them were strongly of the opinion that seward ought to go the president presented his own views which were in effect that it would be a mistake to let seward leave the cabinet at that particular time he managed his own case says mr wells speaking freely and showing great tact shrewdness and ability the meeting continued, until nearly midnight, and the matter was left still in the President's hands. The next morning Mr. Wells called early at the White House, and found Lincoln practically decided not to accept Seward's resignation, saying that it would never do to take the course prescribed by the Senators, that the Government would cave in, it could not stand, would not hold water, the bottom would be out, etc., he requested Wells to go at once to Seward and ask him not to press his resignation Lincoln's intuitional mind seemed at once to connect Secretary Chase with the attack on Seward before Wells left the room the president rang a bell and directed that a message be sent to Chase requesting him to come at once to the White House when Wells returned from his interview with Seward who readily promised to withdraw his resignation at the president's request he found both Chase and Seward waiting for the president the latter soon came in, and his first words were to ask Wells if he had seen the man to which Wells answered that he had, and that he assented to what had been asked of him. The dramatic scene that followed is thus described by Mr. Wells in his diary. The President turned to Chase and said, "'I sent for you, for this matter is giving me great trouble.' Chase said he had been painfully affected by the meeting last evening, which was a total surprise to him and after some not very explicit remarks as to how he was affected informed the president that he had prepared his resignation of the office of secretary of the treasury where is it said the president quickly his eye lighting up in a moment i brought it with me said chase taking the paper from his pocket i wrote it this morning let me have it said the president reaching his long arm and fingers toward chase who held on seemingly reluctant to part with the letter which was sealed and which he apparently hesitated to surrender something further he wished to say but the president was eager and did not perceive it and took and hastily opened the letter this he said looking toward me with a triumphant air cuts the gordian knot i can now dispose of this subject without difficulty i see my way clear Chase sat by Stanton, fronting the fire, the President beside the fire, his face toward them. Stanton nearest him. I was on the sofa near the east window. "'Mr. President,' said Stanton, with solemnity, "'I informed you day before yesterday that I was ready to tender you my resignation. I wish you, sir, to consider my resignation at this time in your possession.' "'You may go to your department,' said the President. "'I don't want yours.' This, holding out Chase's letter, is all I want. This relieves me. My way is clear. The trouble is ended. I will detain neither of you longer. "'We all rose to leave,' concludes Mr. Wells. Chase and myself came downstairs together. He was moody and taciturn. Someone stopped him on the lower stairs, and I passed on. A few days later the President requested both Seward and Chase to withdraw their resignations and resume their duties. This was done and the trouble was ended for the time. Both Secretaries had got their lessons, and profited by them. By the exercise of tact and patience, with firmness and decision when required, the President had let it be known that he was the head and chief of the Administration. Next to the President it was not Secretary Seward, the Premier as he wished to be regarded, but the War Secretary Stanton, who was the mastermind of the Cabinet. He was the incarnation of energy, the embodiment of patriotic zeal. WITH ALL HIS FAULTS OF TEMPER AND DISPOSITION, HE WAS A MAN OF SINGULAR FITNESS FOR THE RESPONSIBLE POSITION HE OCCUPIED, AND HIS SERVICES TO THE GOVERNMENT CAN HARDLY BE OVERESTIMATED. HE HAD BEEN A DEMOCRAT, A MEMBER OF BUCHANAN'S CABINET, AND WAS, SAYS DR. HOLLAND, THE FIRST ONE IN THAT CABINET TO PROTEST AGAINST THE DOWNRIGHT TREASON INTO WHICH IT WAS DRIFTING. HE WAS A MAN OF INDOMITABLE ENERGY, DEVOTED LOYALTY, AND THOROUGH HONESTY. Contractors could not manipulate him, traitors could not deceive him. Impulsive, perhaps, but true. Willful, it is possible, but placable. Impatient, but persistent and efficient, he became at once one of the most marked and important members of the cabinet. Lincoln and Stanton together were emphatically a strong team. Stanton was not a member of Lincoln's first cabinet, but came into it at the beginning of 1862 in place of Simon Cameron who had just been appointed minister to Russia a very interesting account of Cameron's personal relations with Lincoln the causes that led to his retirement from the cabinet and The appointment of Stanton in his place is given by Cameron himself He had been the choice of the Pennsylvania delegation for president at the Chicago convention in 1860 and it was largely due to him that Lincoln received the nomination. After the election, said Mr. Cameron, I made a trip to the West at Mr. Lincoln's request. He had, by letter, tendered me the position of either Secretary of War or Secretary of the Treasury. But when I went to see him he said that he had concluded to make Mr. Seward Secretary of State, and he wanted to give a place to Mr. Chase. "'Salmon P. Chase,' said he, is a very ambitious man very well said i then the war department is the place for him we are going to have an armed conflict over your election and the place for an ambitious man is in the war department there he will have lots of room to make a reputation these thoughts of mine that we were to have war disturbed mr lincoln very much and he seemed to think i was entirely too certain about it finally when he came to make up his cabinet doubtless remembering what i had said about the war department he appointed me secretary of war end of chapter 18 a recording by bill borst